Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 27th, 2022. We've done a, a number of shows over the last few months about American universities being under fire, being in one kind of crisis or another. Did one with the American uh, writer Charlie Eaton about how ivory tower bankers are plundering American universities. Uh, he has a new book out, Bankers in the Ivory Tower. Another with the uh, educationist Deverian Baldwin about how American universities are plundering American cities. Um, his book is In the Shadow of the ivory tower. Certainly the universities are undermining uh, the future workforce. Susan Paterno was on our show recently talking about how college rankings have created a, the student debt crisis. Her book on Game On, why the college admission is rigged and how to beat the system. And then, then of course, there's the racism just in American schools and universities. Leslie Fennick was on the show recently. Jim Crow's pink slip. And the ideas taught in the university are problematic too, in America at least. Uh, Blake Smith, the University of Chicago historian, was on the show suggesting the hypocrisy of the teaching of wokeness and meritocracy at the University of Chicago to an elite. Uh, so if American universities are under fire, what does that say about universities around the rest of the world? Today, we're not going to talk about British universities. We're the British educationist, Stephen Jones. He has a new book out, Universities Under Fire, Hostile Discourses and Integrity Deficits in Higher Education. Stephen teaches at the University of Manchester and he is joining us from there. Stephen, welcome. Um, I don't want to talk about American universities today, at least uh, mostly, but is the crisis in Britain is it a mirror of what's happening in America? Uh, yeah. America, uh, Britain seems to always be one step behind America, particularly in terms of all its various crises. I think there's a lot of policymakers in the UK, Andrew, who are looking at what's happening to universities in the States and actually thinking this could be an opportunity for us as well. So what we've seen in recent times in, in the UK in terms of university policy is a move towards the market. So like US colleges now, students at uh, UK universities pay very high fees and often will spend the next 30 years, possibly longer, paying off um, their debts. And we're also seeing a move to universities becoming much more political spaces. So people who make policy are aware of the power of universities and also whether people in universities may produce knowledge that troubles their ideology or their dominant view of the world. And therefore, universities are a threat and they're looking over at America and they're thinking, oh, so there are strategies which can be used to try and put universities back in their place. And that's what that's what worries me. And that's what my book's about. Well, let's focus on the book and the arguments in the book. Um, universities under fire, hostile discourses and integrity deficits in higher education. A lot of these arguments about university depend on what you think the goal, the purpose of universities are. In your view, why do we have universities? What's the point of universities? Yeah, so for me, it's a public role. 
So for me, it's not about the individual being able to get the qualification, pick up the piece of paper, probably earn a little bit more money. It's not really about that. I think universities have a role to play in creating a society that's wiser, better informed, more civically engaged, um, more united, better able to deal with the crises that happen. Um, and a lot of the early part of my book is about how universities coped with COVID. I think these things are all important, but what's happened is a discourse has shifted in recent years. So increasingly what we see in the UK is universities being presented as an opportunity for economic gain at the individual level. Go to university, you'll graduate, you'll make more money on average than the non-graduate. And that can justify a whole raft of different kinds of measures. For example, it can justify very high fees because after all, if you're going to earn more, why shouldn't you repay the debt? And it also justifies a repositioning of universities within the national psyche. So universities no longer become something that benefits everyone and therefore everyone's happy to pay for. Universities rather just become about um, self-enrichment, literally self-enrichment. Uh, you teach at the University of Manchester. I'm thrilled that actually Later this week, I'm doing an interview with Andrew Hodges, the author of a wonderful book on Alan Turing, The Enigma. This was the book that inspired the film, The Imitation Game. Alan Turing was one of Manchester's most famous uh, professors alongside uh, Wittgenstein. Uh, are you pointing back to a golden age, uh, Stephen, of, of English universities when the universities weren't under fire. Are you uh, idealizing perhaps a pre-neoliberal university? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think that's a really good question, Andrew, because there is a danger um, that we slip into some kind of nostalgia for the past. And really, I try and avoid that throughout my book my book. So let's be clear, um, English universities historically are places of elitism and places of exclusion. They were mostly um, finishing schools for very wealthy white men. Um, and historically, um, the history of UK universities isn't, isn't, isn't the best story to tell. It's a very colonial history. And when you look at where UK universities were funded from, um, there are some pretty dark stories in there. That's not what I'm calling for at all. What I'm calling for is a different kind of conceptualization of universities in an age where trusted knowledge is desperately needed, where publics really need to understand, um, to be able to sift the fake news from the real news, to be able to get to the real story. Now, universities got a vital public role, but my concern is in the neoliberal age, as you describe it, universities have kind of lost their confidence, have kind of lost their identity. And instead of being able to create a narrative that's about um, a contribution to a society that needs it, um, the narrative that's created is one about individual gain and economic gain, and that's a wrong one as far as I'm concerned. So, no, it's not about yearning for some um, golden age where there were uh, one or two brilliant professors and everyone trusted universities. No one questioned authorised forms of expertise. It's far from that. It's much more about trying to modernise the university and trying to think beyond these very narrow framings that are forced upon us by the market. It's interesting. We did a show um, a couple of weeks ago with the Financial Times writer, Simon Cooper. He, ha he, he has two new books out, one about Barcelona Football Club and one called Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tourists Took Over the UK, a book about Boris Johnson and his class of fellow tourists who went to Oxford and then took over the UK. What... Um, Cooper argues, which is interesting, is he says that 
And Barcelona is not a particularly well-run football club now, but it was a few years ago. He says that we need to take the model of Barcelona, a, a meritocratic model where the best footballers, uh, Messi, for example, is rewarded uh, to compare with the British university model, the Oxbridge model, where clowns like uh, Boris Johnson are rewarded for no clear reason. Would you agree with Cooper? I'd be very sympathetic to that argument. I think merit is slightly more complex when it comes to education. So um, I'd imagine that uh, an 11-year-old Messi um, was visibly more talented than um, the people he played football alongside. When it comes to educational attainment, it's subject to a whole raft of other um, other factors. So we know that socioeconomic background um, determines your educational achievement. We know that the kind of school that you go to is a massive influence. We know that social, cultural capital play a big role as well. So it's not a kind of um, physical attribute like football is. However, the lack of meritocracy historically in universities is captured by the dominance of people like Boris Johnson and his cabinet who come from a very, very narrow range of educational backgrounds. And one irony that I always try to point out when it comes to um, our political leaders is that often they will um, they will advocate very heavily for STEM subjects, science, um, engineering, maths, technology, those kind of subjects are the people can be very well paid. But if you look at their own educational background, it's invariable, invariably things like classics or English literature, medieval studies, because, and there, there is a reason for this, those people know that there's a certain kind of cultural capital that comes from having um, access to the classics, having access to elitist forms of knowledge. But what often happens is they don't want those opportunities to be shared more widely. So they create a discourse that rubbishes those kind of subjects in public so that they can um, reserve those opportunities for themselves and their own offspring. We use the D word, Stephen, discourse. Mm -hmm. That's also in the subtitle of your book. Uh, hostile discourses, it's a word that has different kind of meanings. What do you mean by discourse? Yeah, I'm using it broadly to mean the way things are talked about. So one of the things I did when I first set out to write this book was look at how universities are talked that talked about now in, in, in the press, for example, compared to how they were 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And if you go back long enough, universities were mostly talked about in pretty positive ways. There'd be a story about a new vice chancellor or a new breakthrough or some kind of initiative within the community. If you look at stories now, about 80 to 90% of them are negative, the stories about universities. And you'll be familiar with the kind of stories um, that, that circulate. It, universities are places of wokeness. They're very politically correct. They overprotect their students, their students. Are... And there is some, I mean, Stephen, in all honesty, there is some truth. Even you would have to acknowledge that. There's always some truth in, in these discourses, and that's what that's what gives them um, the kind of resonance that they have. But they're massively exaggerated. You know, take the idea of no platforming. This is the idea that universities don't allow people to come and speak if they don't like their views, if their views are politically um, unacceptable to them. So there's a kind of... Um, cleansing of the way people think. It really is, in most cases, nonsense. Um, so at UK universities every year, there's 50 odd thousand events that take place and about 50 or 60 which are questioned in some kind of way as to whether they're appropriate. And sometimes it is right to question whether um, the platform of the university is the right platform for everyone. Because universities have got a duty, I always think, 
to freedom of speech, but they've also got a duty to accuracy of speech. In other words, we can't let anyone come to a university and say anything they want. And what universities do very well is have peer review processes, which very slowly, sometimes agonizingly slowly, get towards the truth. And you can't just have, it's not just about providing a platform to anyone who wants one. And I think there's a big misunderstanding there. And I think universities need to be much, much more robust in terms of setting out what they're for. You mentioned vice chancellors, Stephen. Uh, the one thing I'm pretty confident about is that no one watching this would know who the vice chancellor of Manchester University, I'm guessing you you might because you're an insider and you write about university policy. Um, in, in our conversation with uh, Simon Cooper, we talked about leadership and the importance of leadership. Manchester, of course, is famous not just as a university town, but as a football town. And most people will have heard certainly of Manchester United Football Club and, of course, of Sir Alex Ferguson, the great leader of Manchester United. Um, he wrote a book with Mike Moritz on strategy, uh, uh, Ferguson was very much of a self-created man. He didn't go to university, though he eclipsed, I think, anyone else who went to the university of his generation. Do universities need more leaders like a, a Sir Alex Ferguson? Uh, football clubs need good managers, strong managers. They're made by their strong managers. Do universities need that too? Well, Alex Ferguson was good at doing things differently. And I think we need a cohort of university leaders who are willing to do things differently. I think the challenge for university leaders is in recent years in the UK, there's been a big shift in policy. So for, for a long time, universities were left alone to get on with things in the way that they wanted, basically by policy. Every student you brought in, you got a certain amount of money for, and there was opportunities to bring in money for research as well. But what's happened more recently is the government have decided that to improve standards, you have to have lots and lots of competition. Now, the idea of competition works fine in football, and obviously Alex Ferguson's success is based on winning games, but with university and with academic knowledge and academic expertise, it's a bit different. So I would put it like this. If, 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 if an academic at another university, maybe a US college, makes a breakthrough in my field, then I, don't, I might feel a little bit of jealousy. But basically, I'm excited. I want to read about that breakthrough. I want to apply it to my own teaching and research. I think the whole um, of academia gains from that. So it's not about one-upmanship. Now, what we've had is policy that's really based on the idea of the market and based on the idea of competition. And we haven't had vice chancellors or leaders of universities who are able to go beyond that. In fact, a lot of vice chancellors are co-opted into the system because we've seen um, senior pay um, rise very, very quickly. Uh, at, at UK universities, even though medium pay is being pretty static. So what we've seen is a co-opted co group of um, senior leaders who do things in ways that are consistent with market success, but aren't necessarily in the best interests of their community, their students, their staff, or actually their whole nation. Is that what you mean? You, <coughs> excuse me, you had a piece from a couple of years ago in The Guardian about turning universities into sweatshops, um, whatever that means. Uh, I mean, isn't that a bit of an exaggeration, Stephen? Well, I think, you know, that the, the newspaper editors, sub-editors tend to write the headlines. Um, but I, I stand by the argument that I make in that piece um, fully. So what we've seen <laughs> in universities, um, and it's a real pattern across universities around the globe, is a move to short-term temporary contracts for staff 
that raise levels of precarity, raise insecurity, and don't make people and don't allow people to make those kind of breakthroughs, which take a long time. So you mentioned Alan Turing before. Things for Alan Turing didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of work, and that kind of work becomes increasingly difficult um, to sustain in the modern university because the modern university wants to have employment practices that allow maximum flexibility for the institution, but often at the cost to the individual. Um, member of staff. I don't think that's right. I think universities should try to be the exemplar when it comes to employment practices. So I think universities should say, look, when it comes to gender and ethnicity, when it comes to all kinds of pay gaps, we're going to lead the way and we're going to show the private sector how it should be done. What's happened in recent decades isn't really consistent with that. Uh, two things to me, uh, two things seems to me, Stephen, that Britain excels in, doesn't excel in many things. One is football. And the other is universities. Um, now, I mentioned Manchester United earlier. They're owned by um, Americans. Uh, not, a lot of people aren't particularly happy with that. And the other big ta- team in the city is owned by Abu Dhabi owners. I'm talking about uh, sweatshops, uh, you know, we, we, we know the narrative on that one. Um, how much investment do you think could or should there be from overseas in America, in British universities, why wouldn't uh, an overseas investor want to turn Manchester University into the Manchester United or Manchester City of global universities? And why would that be a bad thing? Because I'm guessing you probably think it isn't a great thing. <laughs> yeah, you're guessing right. Universities don't make profit. Universities aren't about making profit and football clubs often are about making profit and the people who invest in them are motivated by profit. But here's the thing, that's what makes universities special. Okay, universities have got the opportunity to operate free from market systems, to do something different, to provide a different kind of voice and to make a different kind of contribution. There's no more important time for that to happen them right now because right now we're seeing a mass of misinformation we're seeing very authoritarian governments who are deliberately in some cases misleading their populations we're seeing people who really need to know that there's a source of reliable truth well that's what universities are good at and the reason english british universities have been so successful over the previous nine or ten centuries is because they've been very good at undertaking the research on which evidence-based decisions can be taken by policymakers, by society, and trying to push forward knowledge in ways that benefit everyone. But now we've, we've got the internet, and as you say, the internet isn't the answer to very much. It can be a very, un, it can be democratized, but it can be a very um, messy form of knowledge creation um, and, and knowledge dissemination. And universities absolutely have a role. So I don't think it's just about, it's, it's the football club analogy really works. It's not about being the biggest and best in the world. It's about serving local and national communities and providing the kind of knowledge that's most useful at a critical time to me. Well, you're talking to me from Manchester. You're involved with Manchester University. Manchester has a remarkable culture, many wonderful books and movies made about Manchester. How intimately integrated should a university like Manchester be um, with local music, local creativity, local schools? How, how localized are the best universities? 
I think they are localised, and I think the University of Manchester is actually a pretty good example in that respect. I think we've got lots of um, work going on at a local level. We work with local schools here within my Department of Education. Um, we work within local. We work with local theatre groups, local school groups, all kinds of initiatives that work really well. The danger is with these kind of locally based initiatives at the moment within the funding model for universities, there really isn't much incentive for universities to engage at a local level. The way universities make money is to bring in students primarily. And the way they really make money is to bring in international students. So when we bring in a, a student from say China, we're able to charge them any amount of money that we want for the course they sign up to. It's an absolute free market. And so we exploit that as any, any, um, any organization in that position would seek to exploit that advantage and we trade on our heritage and we try to um, have a business model um, that's as um, successful as possible. Now there's nothing wrong with that but it's a very risky business model because if those Chinese students stop coming, if we stopped recruiting from international markets then we find ourselves in a very different position and if at the same time we neglect our local duties and we neglect our national needs, we also lose the support of the public. And the worst case scenario for me would be if the income tap was switched off because for some reason we weren't able to do well in terms of international recruitment. And at the same time, our reputation within um, within the UK was also damaged because we've been overlooking our core principle, which is providing teaching and research for our, for our, for our local um, community and nation. Are there models, Stephen, for universities which speak about themselves in a in a healthy way? Clearly, yeah. you believe that universities are under fire in the United Kingdom. But a lot of people on the show arguing that um, they're also under fire in the in the US. I'm guessing some people would say, "Oh, there's this Danish university, or Finnish university, or Swedish university, or Norwegian university." That's the model. Um, can we can we get beyond the Scandinavian model? Are there universities in Singapore, or perhaps even China, that that, that work better than the UK model? Well, I, you know, the problem is that the Northern European countries tend to get things right when it comes to funding their universities. So what they want is a funding system that comes from general taxation, which gets buy-in from the whole population, rather than one that comes from individual graduates, which is basically the model that you have in the US and the UK and Australia and many other countries. I think the signal that you send when you have a publicly funded system, the signal that you send to young people is a really positive one. You're saying to young people, look, we back you. We don't think you should be indebted for wanting to improve yourself and wanting to maximize your education opportunities. And we know that you're going to pay this back because you're going to get good jobs that contribute to our society and you're going to pay taxation and your general taxation will then fund the next cohort of students. So I'm not sure there's a way to have a to have a university system that's very successful without some degree of public backing. And I think that's the issue for policymakers because it's very easy to go down the road of marketization and say that we want some cutthroat competition, that there are too many universities, that um, some courses don't um, lead to graduate jobs which are well paid enough. It's very easy and it's very tempting to go down that route. But in the long run, you're damaging the thing that makes higher education most, most useful, which is really about trying to trying to um, make the individual student feel part of something bigger, that it's not just about themselves, that they belong to a society, that they've got a role to play and that they can fulfill that role and education is a route 
um, to have all kinds of different ways of thinking about the world around them. And at a time when climate change is squeezing us all and when there's uncertainty about pandemics, there is no more important time for young people to be able to, to, to engage with these really big issues, Andrew. Yeah, I'm not sure if you're scaring people. I don't really know what it's got to do with climate change or COVID. I mean, some people might be watching this and saying, Stephen's talking about excellence, but you don't see in Holland, for example, anyone can go to any of the universities. They've probably got a good system. But you don't see any of the Dutch or the Swedish universities show up in the rankings, but Oxford and Cambridge and Manchester and London and Harvard and Princeton and Stanford and Berkeley, they always show up. So some people might argue to have real excellence, you need competition, you need winners and losers. How would you respond to that, Stephen? Well, that, that, that's exactly the discourse that's within my book. And, you know, I, I don't make the count the case that there's no truth in it at all. But, you know, look at the rankings for universities. It's a wealthy elite universities that do well. Those that have been historically able to access large amounts of money. The idea of excellence, you'd really have to break that down and say, well, what are they excellent at? They're excellent at recruiting high achieving students because of their reputation. Are they excellent when it comes to teaching those students? Well, that's questionable. Um, you know, some of the evidence would suggest that lower ranking universities actually do a really good job with teaching their students, put a lot more effort into it. It's not It's not as straightforward as saying, here is the ranking of excellence. Here's who's at the top, here's who's second. That's a dominant discourse and that's what people, that's what policymakers and particularly right-wing politicians want us to think about universities, that it is just like a football league table and you've got your Manchester United or your Chelsea or your Manchester City and you've got your relegation teams as well down at the bottom. And that's because that's where they deserve to be. Actually, education isn't like that. Education isn't really like a game of football at all. It's much more about collective growth. And that's what universities can offer. And in my view, that's a discourse they need to reclaim. You didn't like my climate change argument a moment ago, but what I would say is this, universities should have been much more forceful about um, putting forward the evidence around climate change much more strongly, much earlier, because for many decades of my lifetime and yours, there was a debate about whether climate change was real or whether it was gonna happen or whether it wasn't gonna happen. What the science actually said is, yeah, it's definitely going to happen and it's going to be much worse than people think. I think universities do have a role to play on issues like that, which are really an existential threat for all of us. Well, but that, you know, that's still debatable. We've done a lot of shows on that. I mean, at what point should we be fearful of educational mandarins controlling this whole conversation? I mean, if you become vice chancellor, of Manchester, Stephen, um, do we have to have a perpetual, and I use this word because you use it, public discourse on the environment? Do we have to have a public discourse on the environment? I, I think that we should be discussing climate change very seriously. And look, that's what young people want. The young people that come to the University of Manchester and other universities, they are socially responsible. They're socially aware. They understand the science better than older generations do. And they want the university to capture and reflect this. They want useful knowledge that they can take on to change the world around them. Now, if that's being woke, because that's a discourse, that's a counter discourse that comes in, that this is just some kind of, I don't know what a woke meritocracy woke is, meritocracy. but this is, <laughs> this is, the accusation will always come back that this is just wokeness. I don't think it's wokeness. I think it's young people who realize there are issues. I, I, I take your point, perhaps, Stephen. I mean, as you know, the headlines in the United States now are completely dominated by the abortion issue. Yeah. In your ideal world, what would 
I mean, if, 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 if your university, if your ideal university existed in, in the United States, what would be the role of a, an ideological commissioner at a, a U.S. university when it comes to the abortion debate? Because it's complicated, however one feels about it. it it's not a, a simple issue. Where, what, what, what would happen on that front? So I think universities aren't there to try to tell people what to think, which seems to be the framing that you're moving towards. I think universities are there to provide evidence and to provide facts. Um, let me give you a, a slightly different example. Um, there was a, a, a clip that was um, went viral on social media recently um, about gun laws. And there was a representative from the NRA who said to the interviewer, um, you know, I, I don't think guns should be banned in America um, because actually hammers kill more people every year than guns. And the interviewer was smart enough or quick enough to actually tackle him on this and say, come on, that's not true. We're not, we're not going to ban, ban hammers because hammers don't kill more people than guns. Now, the representative was absolutely adamant that that was the case. This is a danger once you move away from authorized forms of knowledge. The danger is that rumor takes over, that people have their own opinions and their entitlement to their own opinions takes precedent over any kind of um, relationship with fact. What universities need to be there for is as fact checkers, as gatekeepers of, of knowledge in order to say, we've got a peer review process. So uh, as an academic, I can't, I can't publish anything without an anonymous group of my peers saying, yeah, that makes sense. That's okay. That's right. That's true. And this process has been going on for hundreds of years. So the claims to knowledge that come from the university sector are mo more robust than the claims to knowledge that we see on the internet or on social media all the time. And that's a difference. It's not about universities taking sides. That's not what I'm advocating. What I'm saying is the whole of society would benefit from universities being much more confident in the way they present academic knowledge and academic expertise. Well, there you have it. Your university is under fire, at least according to Stephen Jones. Hostile discourses and integrity deficits in higher education. I, I can't leave you, Stephen, without uh, asking you what an, an integrity deficit is. What does that mean? Yeah, we've not had a chance to talk about this, but what I what the point I want to make is universities are under fire, but sometimes, you know what, they deserve it. Sometimes there are integrity deficits. In other words, universities don't act in the ways that they should do. So when it comes to some of the claims that are made, universities can overstate things, they can oversell themselves, they can fall into the traps of private enterprise fall into, they can pay their senior leaders and their professors like me far too much money because they think that you have to emulate private sector practices and they can become institutions which aren't trusted in, 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 in the public or by the public and they lose touch with their publics and that is a big danger. So you've got this two-pronged attack on universities at the moment. You've got the attack from outside where you've got a quite right-wing media and quite hostile government who are often attacking universities structurally but there's also the issue with the way universities are run and the way they're conceptualized by the people that work in university and I think there's a lack of integrity in the latter sometimes and I want to try and acknowledge that and draw that out as well. So would you say that the UK university is suffering from an integrity deficit disorder? I found that headline in, a, in an old Wall Street Journal op-ed. Yeah, I'm not sure it's a disorder. I think it's, it's an inevitable consequence of policy. So if you have policy that says universities are just like um, private companies competing for your business. 
going to university is no different to buying a product. It's no different from buying a new TV. You choose the best TV, you shop around, you get the best deal, you get the best value for money. If you treat universities like that, then you are going to end up with um, universities acting in ways that lack integrity, just as a private sector sometimes do to try and undercut one another. That's not why I want universities to be for. I think we need to think bigger and think about their role in a society that desperately needs them, in my view. Well, if you want to think bigger and you want to challenge integrity deficits, you need to read Stephen Jones's new book. It's just out this week, Universities Under Fire, Hostile Discourses and Integrity Deficits in Higher Education. Stephen, what else are you reading these days what else am i reading one of the the books that influenced me when i was writing that book is by a british journalist called nesreen malik and she wrote a book called we need new stories and this was a general book about politics you might be familiar with it and she said the left need to frame things differently they need new stories in order to bring people on side capture the public imagination i think my book is a version of we need new stories for university i don't think universities can just trade off the fact that we've got nice buildings that historically we were very successful um that we have you know that we educate prime ministers that's not enough we need to reinvent ourselves for 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 the world we live in now and we need new stories to persuade the public that we have a place otherwise we will become obsolete